This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. So it's autumn. I'm enjoying the seasonal shift in Buffalo, New York. Our close proximity to Lake Erie makes for a fascinating array of differences compared to my old home in Missouri. I'm enjoying the moment, and I'm recording this from my enclosed patio while watching the leaves blow and the wind come off of the lake. Next door, a crew is re-roofing my neighbor's house, and winter is coming. And that's okay. Life is pretty good. It's not perfect, but that's okay too. Today's episode is about happiness. Happiness in life tends to be an elusive concept if you think about it. It's something we're always chasing. We think we'll be happy when we can just graduate from high school and get out into the real world. We think we'll be happy after we get out of college and we land that cushy job and get our own apartment or house. We think we'll be happy when the new iPhone comes out or when we can just trade in our car. Or if we can just get to retirement, we'll be able to travel like we've always wanted. Then when we travel, we miss home. Why are we like this? Today's conversation touches on these topics. So my guest today is Mark Van Buren. He's an author, yoga and meditation teacher, and a musician. Mark has a new book out called A Fool's Guide to Actual Happiness, and it's out now from Wisdom Publications. Mark is the owner and head instructor of Live Free Yoga Studio in River Edge, New Jersey, which is near New York City. He is also the singer of the band Seeking the Seeker, whose music you just heard now and who you will hear again to close out this episode. Mark's new book is incredibly readable, unlike many books on meditation, yoga, mindfulness, or spirituality that you may have come across out there. Mark is a rock and roll singer. He's a yoga teacher, and he has a very young writing voice. This book exudes youth, but it is not exclusively aimed at a numerically young crowd. This is also a book for the young at heart. This book exudes youthfulness while also being wise. I love the book, and I loved this chat with Mark. So without further delay, here is my conversation with Mark Van Buren, author of A Fool's Guide to Actual Happiness. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited uh, to have this discussion with you today. Thank you. So I'm hoping that you can just spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience. However you see fit, you can say whatever you like about yourself. Okay. So my name is Mark, and uh, I'm an author. Uh, I'm a meditation and mindfulness instructor. Uh, I also teach yoga and um yeah, I mean, my, my main passion is really spreading this teaching or these teachings of meditation and mindfulness uh, to whoever's willing to listen. I mean, I've seen the power uh, of these practices within my own life, within the people um, that I see who practice it, the people I work with, my clients. And I just want to, you know, keep spreading it because there's so many people who are suffering unnecessarily you know, and don't have the tools to face the difficulties of life. And if they just had just even, you know, just some of the basic teachings or the content of the teachings, it can radically change the way that they experience their lives, their suffering, their thoughts, their emotions, uh, everything. So where do you teach uh, your yoga? classes uh, yeah so i have a yoga studio in river edge new jersey it's called live free yoga um i also teach meditation at englewood hospital and at the jcc in uh, tenafly 
So all over. <laughs> very cool. Very cool. So I kind of want to go back in your life a little bit to kind of set the stage for the conversation leading up to the book. Um, and so you know you're on a show that's generally about religion. I talk about all kinds of different religions. How did you get re- interested in religion in general? Sure. So, uh, I mean, I grew up Catholic, like, uh, like, a lot of people, like a lot of people I know. And, um, you know, when I had my confirmation when I was like 16, it pretty much confirmed that I was done with the tradition and done with going to church and all that. And then, you know, I went from 16 till about college, you know, college years without any sort of religion or anything like that. And, uh, I didn't have anything cool happen to me, like a near death experience or, you know, there was no illness or anything, but there was just something in me that, you know, wanted to start seeking again. And I, I ended up finding uh, meditation practice, something again, something inside me was like, you know, learn about meditation. And I don't know why, but I, I listened to it. And, um, you know, and I got heavily involved in meditation and I got heavily involved in Chan Buddhism, which is the Chinese version of Zen. Um, and that made me want to go back to school because I, I figured, you know, there's got to be some answer to this life. And of course, I didn't find any answers, but I did learn a lot of really cool stuff going back to school and studying from the scholarly perspective, um, all the, you know, religion, basically. So, you know, it's meditation, it led me there and that inner yearning to, to look at life a little more deeply or, you know, a little deeper than I, than I usually would. So in your bio, in the back of the book, I also noticed that you have an undergraduate degree in religious studies, right? Yeah. So I got my bachelor's, uh, in religion. Cool. So I, as a high school teacher, uh, I would teach high school classes for all of seniors about, um, religion and several of my, um, graduated seniors have gone on to study religion in their undergraduate years and find it to be immensely fascinating. Um, but why did you pursue that degree when you got there? Um, and how do you feel that it shaped who you became today? It's funny you say that because, uh, you know, one of our teachers was always saying, you know, so many people ask like, Oh, well, what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that? A religion degree? What can you do with that? You know, uh-huh. um, He's like, it's not about what you do with it, it's who you become with it. So it's, it's interesting that you came up with that question. But, um, you know, I, I, I was just in that searching phase. I was very into mysticism. I thought that all the mystics of every tradition were saying similar things. And I really wanted to, to know what they were talking about experientially. Not, But, uh, you know, I also felt that I could find some answers, you know, in a college setting where somebody has been studying this stuff their whole life and they can really bring some insight to me and um you know so it kind of came from that search that wanting to know and um like i said i didn't find the answers i was looking for um but i i got a whole wealth of knowledge and, and insight into the different traditions and how how you know how they're spoken and how they speak of what I think to be uh, the same truth, you know. Who are some of the major teachers that you've enjoyed working with over the years? It can be like your undergraduate professors. It can be your teachers in Buddhism. Like who do you uh, go to and who have you enjoyed working with? Um, So in Buddhism, I studied with uh, a bunch of people in the Chan tradition, um, you know, Simon Child, uh, John Crook, all all, uh, these different uh, descendants or whatever, however you want to call it of master Sheng Yen. Um, I personally studied with uh, a teacher that I'm still studying with. Uh, I, I call her Roshi. Her name's Joan, but uh, she's from the heart circle Sangha in Ridgewood, New Jersey. It's a very warm and loving Sangha. And um, you know, the Zen tradition can be cold at times and their Sangha is just full of warmth, you know, and it still carries the same strictness and discipline but with just this uh, more friendliness and, and, and a, se- a sense of warmth is the best way I can put it. Um, I've been in love with Pema Chodron for the longest time, like her teachings, um, and uh, I've read basically all of her books. I do all her courses, and I think my teaching style is so in line with her because she always talks about suffering, you know, whereas a lot of people, they want to talk about all this positive stuff. 
But I, I find that talking about suffering, I really connect deeply with the people I'm in front of, and it really resonates with them, and it gets them to want to practice, to want to lean into these uncomfortable things. So she's been a, a huge influence, Jack Kornfield, um, Ajahn Chah, and all the Ajahn, you know, the forest Thai tradition people, I've, I've really connected with them. You know, it's like the no BS spiritual people that I really connect with, you know, mm-hmm. and, and and you know what? And and Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, he's a little bit of a softy, you know, when it comes to his teaching <laughs> style. And I think it's important for that. Um, and, and I I do resonate with him too. I met him one time, and he's a great person. And uh, you know, just like I said, he's a little soft sometimes for me. I like to be. I like the, you know, Ajahn Chah, like you're gonna die, and you know, have, you got to face this, and you know. Yeah. That, that's different. how that's how I am too. I like the really in your face, hard hitting stuff, and actually, that's one of the things that I mostly appreciate about your book as well is like the no BS approach and straight ahead, um, looking at death and all the terrible things that can come with life, but owning those things and looking at them head on and not being unrealistic or avoiding discussing those things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And your uh, your love of Pema Chodron really comes out in the text as well. Like as I was reading, I kept thinking about all these things that I've read from Pema Chodron, and I could tell that you really enjoyed and respected her work a lot too. So all of these experiences that you had in yoga, meditation, Buddhism comes to your new book, A Fool's Guide to Actual Happiness, which is out this year from Wisdom. So how did the premise for the book develop over time until you felt like it could make it happen? Because like, as an as an aspiring author myself, I've had so many ideas that have like never come to fruition. So how did you get to the point to where it actually all came together and you were able to make this book happen? Well, I have to give a lot of props to Dr. Johnson, who is a religious studies one of the teachers uh, at Montclair. I'm I'm not sure if he's still there anymore, but um, we did. I wanted to write a book before I wrote this book and I ended up getting three credits for writing this really long paper. Um, but he basically taught me how to write because I was a horrible writer. I didn't like reading and I didn't like writing. And, you know, now it's like the complete opposite, but he, I have to give give him a lot of credit because he taught me the no BS approach. You know, it was like, I used to put so much fluff and what I could say in one sentence, I wrote in a page of nonsense, you know, so he taught me how to write. Um, and then, you know, it's funny because the original book, uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to curse on this show. You can. Uh, the original book uh, that I self-published uh, was called Be Your Shitty Self. <laughs> I and, love it. Um, you know, there was an audio book. And, you know, to this day, I still can't figure out what it was. It was either an audio book or a, a, some kind of audio. I thought it was a Pema Chodron thing, but then I could never find it. Um, but where a woman like uh, asked her a question she's like you know i've been doing these practices i've been doing everything you say but i'm still like my shitty self like and i and i had always felt that way it's like i'm putting all this work and i'm going on these retreats i'm paying attention moment by moment it's just like i'm still like the same screwed up kid that i was when i first started you know and of course there's some subtleties to that that's you know but you know and and that and just seeing the the way that i dealt with myself for many of these years of trying to get rid of things trying to show off how spiritual I was, like all the different traps that I fell in, I felt like I could instruct people and tell people so they don't waste their time with the the silly stuff that I screwed up with, you know, in my practice. I could just start them right at the, the main the main point. Start them right where they need to be and just say, this is where this is this is the practice, you know, and um start here. Like don't go through this other stuff. And and I, I meet with so many people that you know, they just don't like themselves or their lives or, you know, and they don't have any friendliness towards their, their mind, towards their emotions, towards, you know, what's going on. And, and it's really that simple. Like bring a little bit of kindness to where you're at. And like, that's my little twisted sense of humor. Be your shitty self. Like, um, but it, it's basically saying like, this is it. I mean, this is where you are. This is this is your life. There is no other time. There's no other place. There's no other you. There's just this. And 
you know, for me, I, I tell this story and I'll try to make it brief, but my thing was like emptiness. I, that was my struggle, you know, and most of my life was trying to fill that emptiness with some kind of excitement, changing majors, changing girlfriends, changing this, going on vacations, going on. It was always like trying to fill, 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 and it never fulfilled that deeper place. You know, and then I went to the opposite extreme of like, I need to get rid of this. So I went to therapy. I tried all these spiritual practices. And I tried to bypass like my issues. And this is such a crucial point that, you know, all these people travel to India, to this, to that. They're searching for something. They're trying to bypass their problems and just get to this peaceful, blissful place. But what they don't realize is the peaceful, blissful place is right there in the, the mess. You know, like a lotus flower is the greatest analogy because it grows out of the muddy water. You know, gardening, you know, you need crap to, literally, you need crap to grow the food you eat, you know? So it's like, you can't, there's no way around it. Like, eventually, all these people that go searching, 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 they eventually come back and they realize, oh, <laughs> you know, I'm right back where I started. So then you turn towards it and you say, how can I work with this? then peace really is a possibility because you're not fighting yourself. You're not fighting the conditions. You're saying, okay, this is what's presenting itself. Now what? You know? So it seems like there's something that I'm, I'm pulling out in a thread here and that sure. it seems like one of your main arguments and everything that you just said, and it's also throughout the book, is that the key to life is now. The key to life is here. So I'm sitting here talking to you which is great because if we stop and think about it, this conversation is all there is right now, you know? That's all there is at all. I mean, that's that. this is our life right now. Yeah. There's yeah. No, where else could we be? Right, here we are. And yeah. so you have a, a quote on the first page of the book that says, actual happiness is now. Can you just elaborate just a tiny bit more on that? Because I love that quote, actual happiness is now. Yeah, so, uh, you know, where else can it be? You know, like, and, and that's like, as human beings, we have this ability to imagine, right? So we have imagination, we can imagine a future where we have this perfect this and that. And, or we could think about the time when we were younger, and maybe things were, you know, a little different, and we, you know, had more free time or whatever it is. So we have this mind that it's wonderful to have a mind like this, because, you know, look at what we can do with it. But at the same time, it's it's a constantly uh, it's a it's a constantly comparing mind, you know. So it it's always comparing this to that, and it's that's always going to leave you in a state of, you know, just un, uneasiness, unhappiness, and uh, you know. But I see so many people their their lives are right here. Mm -hmm. Why why They're, do you think why do you think it's so hard for humans in like modern advanced nations to grasp this? Why does this seem so hard to understand? Do you think? Well, I think it's human nature to to not be present and to always be, you know, think of our ancestors out in the woods, so however long ago that was. Um, as the ones that were just sitting there content and at peace with things got eaten by the bear because they heard the rustling. They heard the rustling in the woods and they're like, oh, it's just sound, you know, who would, you know they, they got killed. It was the person that's like, oh, crap, I think that's a bear. Let's get the heck out of here. You know, those are the the ones that survive. So it's like our neuro, you know, our neurotic ancestors are the ones that survived, and we've inherited that. You know, all these years of, if you want to call it karma or habitual tendencies or primal instincts, whatever. Like we we have that, and that's how we relate to our life. You know, it's survival. That's that's all the mind is. You know, people get upset with the mind thinking too much or whatever, but it's an organ. You know, your heart beats. You're not upset that your heart's beating. You're not upset when your stomach digests. But when your mind's thinking when you don't want it to, it's like, oh, my God. But that's what your mind was created to do. And it's very heavily based in survival, right, and and fear uh, and planning and, and holding on to what we like and comfort and, and running away from discomfort. It makes sense to our ancestors, right? If you ate something in the woods that made you sick, like – you're going to remember that and you're going to want to stay away from anything that looks like that. So from a survival perspective, that per that mindset makes absolute sense, you know, like avoid the things that you don't like that make you feel not good and only try to gravitate towards that which does, you know, and that's our condition. So have you ever like been in a, a, po a moment in your life when you ran away to like, say like, a monastery or like a 10 day silent retreat or something. And you came back and you didn't really feel any better. 
Um, well, yeah, I mean, I went on a five day retreat and it was wonderful. And I turned on my phone after the five days to find out my girlfriend like said, Oh, like I did something stupid. I cheated. on <laughs> like, And then, and then on the way I went, obviously I was going to go right there to speak to her about it. And then I like went the wrong way and I went over the Tappan Zee bridge again. And that was just like, it was, a, it was a disaster. You know? <laughs> so it was just like, great. Like. You know, habitual energy is so strong, and that's why I make the crucial uh, point when I'm teaching is like you got to practice every day. You got to pause as often as you can. You really need to pay attention because this habit energy. You know, we have the habit of engaging with the habit energy, if that makes sense. You know, mm -hmm. we have habitual tendencies and ways of reacting, and that's not an issue itself. It's that we identify with it. We give those habits our mouth or we give the habits our body and and we do stuff from them you know and that's where they become an issue yeah so as a society like if you look out your window right now in new jersey you're going to see a busy world if i look out my window in buffalo new york i'm going to see a busy world right i was in manhattan like four days ago busy world so as a society we tend to talk about things like when i get that degree or when I get that promotion, or when I finally have that salary. Like when we get to these such and such points in life, we'll be happy. But would you argue that it's kind of a harmful worldview in a way to think that way? Yeah, I think it can be. It depends on how you hold it. There's nothing wrong with pursuing things and looking forward to things and enjoying things. I mean, this isn't like an anti-pleasure way of living or like an anti-living way of living. You know, it's uh it's it's just a realistic way, you know, all right, so yes, it'll be great when I get that degree, but I'm here now, so what can I do now to, you know, be more effective to get that degree? You know, if you're sitting there thinking about the degree, the degree, the degree, life's passing you by, and you know what? We There's no certainty or guarantee that you're going to make it to that degree, mm -hmm. and this is something that people our society shuns this idea of death and aging and and like this is where buddhism begins aging sickness and death so you know look at how much money is wasted on products to make you stay young and surgeries and you know it's like we're so afraid of of aging we're so afraid of death even our funerals we we dress them up we make them look like they're still alive you know so it's like our country kind of has just a, a different way versus like the Indian culture where they bring them out and they, you know, they can do the charnel grounds where they, you know, light the fire and leave the, the remains. And uh, it's just a different way of relating to death. And, and uh, for me, meditation is a way to align ourselves with what's true. What's true? I'm going to get old. What's true? I can get sick. What's true? I'm going to die. You know, so how how can I start relating to my life now in a way that I'll be at peace or have equanimity when these things start occurring? You know, if, if you live in a delusion where none of this exists, which I feel like a lot of us do, we pretend like it doesn't exist. We distract ourselves with our jobs, with cars, with this, with that. And then when it comes, it's like, wait a second, this isn't supposed to happen. And it's like, no, you were wrong. You were in uh, the delusion and life's waking you up now and saying, remember, this is what's real. Yeah. Can you think of a time in your life when you were sort of guilty of thinking that way, of seeking happiness in some kind of imagined future? I mean, I would say most of my life was, was that, like pursuing, you know, trying to, like I said, fill up that void, you know, fill up that space by thinking of, well, where can I go next, you know, or I remember even in my spiritual practice, it's like, well, if I just go on this 10 day retreat, then I go away to Maine for two weeks, and I come back and I live at the monastery for a month, I'm surely to be enlightened and happier by, you know, <laughs> by then. And, uh, and I did all those things, and I'm still me. And I, you know, and, and, and I think it's, it's such an important insight to realize that th this is not a quick fix. And, and, and there's no like, blissful ending for for this you know and there's not even a guarantee that you'll get bliss you know what i'm saying it's like it, it, it and it's like how do you teach people to be excited about sitting in meditation when there's no guarantees there's nothing for you to attain uh you're not supposed to try to get something for yourself you know and uh it's it's very tricky to teach it in a, an authentic way where it doesn't become a gimmicky self-help feel good all the time thing you know mm-hmm 
Something that I'm really I'm thinking about right now is I'm thinking about a lot of my past students that I've taught in the last uh, several years in Missouri, and I would have you know twenty to twenty five guest speakers come and visit my religious studies class every year to talk about different practices and philosophies of the world. Do you teach any teenagers in your yoga studio or meditation classes? Sure. I mean, I used to speak uh, a few times at Holy Angels, which is a, a Catholic school. Um, I talk in front of religion classes in college, uh, you know, 120 kids, you know, I'm actually this Thursday, I'm going to freshman seminar or whatever it's called to, to talk about it. So yeah, I'm very familiar with the, the teenagers and the college kids and even some of the little kids I work with, you know, like seven, eight, 11, um, you know, and I feel like it's a very different world than when I was. Yeah. That, <laughs> yeah, my because my students would would love you. I guarantee it. Like I'm just thinking about how much like how how bubbly they would all be if you were in front of them right now. Um, what do you feel like teens are sort of looking for or thinking about in 2018? Like, what's your perception of what the youth want out of a society? Well, all I can I can't really speak for each person, obviously, but I feel like as a society, if we look at what we're promoting that's what they're going towards, right? So being sexy, right? Being fit, uh, having material things, being famous, you know, like, uh, and, and, you know, a lot of alcohol and drug use and like that, like, that's just like, I, even like my age still, I feel like no, they haven't grown out of like their college years yet. It's still like people my age playing beer pong or like getting wasted. And it's like, there's got to be something else to life than just going out and getting drunk with your friends, you know, like there's so there's such a it's so shallow. And I feel like our society now is shallow, like in the music world. Look at our music. It's all pop. It's all this, like 124 BPMs. You know, every song is the same. It's just about how can I create a catchy song? It's not about let me express the unexpressible into a song and, and capture you and let you feel what I'm feeling and, and my humanness and uh take anything yoga now they have beer yoga goat yoga all this it's like what does this have to do with anything this is it's just so shallow you know so uh what i think we're all looking for and especially the kids is just some depth you know some realness some authenticity i think that's a good word to authenticity mm -hmm. um, and i think you know, when I go up in front of a group of people, I'm saying things that are obvious and clear as day, you know, and j just truths of life. And but they feel that that there's like, whoa, like it's like I threw them into space, you know, and there's all of a sudden there's this like infinite space that they've landed in. And it's been there the whole time. But it's just that someone needs to just remind that, you know. Yeah. The authenticity of it all is very important. And the book has got such a, it's got a young voice too. Like I'm listening to it and like you and I, like I think we're peers. I mean, I'm, I'm 34 and I think that we're pretty, we're probably pretty close. So like, and I've spent the last, you know, 12 years in high schools. And so like, I feel like that really contributed in helping me keep a, a youthful outlook and a hopeful outlook on the world because I'm constantly surrounded by youth and hope. So when I read the book, this is the, exactly the kind of thing that I would recommend to any young person who is thinking about exploring these practices because the voice will latch onto them straight away from page one. So I think that you've pulled off something really important here with this text. I think it's such a, such a young and awesome book. Yeah, you know, my audience is either middle-aged women or college and younger kids. So it's yeah. like this. But, you know, I, I can resonate with anybody because, again, I, I speak about suffering and everybody suffers. So, uh, you know, we could walk into a room and talk about our beliefs and we'll all be fighting, right? Because I believe in God. I don't believe in God. I believe in this. I don't believe in it. But if we come in there and say, hey, listen, I struggle with anxiety or I have depression or I just lost somebody and I'm really feeling crappy about it, like everybody can understand that, you know, and it's a, it has a uniting factor to it. For sure, yeah. Um, so the book has this really elusive term in the title, happiness. Yeah. And I'm curious of what you're wrestling with with, with regards to happiness still in your life, because you have a book revolving around happiness. So what's, what do you struggle with as far as happiness? 
Well, you know what? I think it's important to define what I mean by that. Um, you know, the normal happiness that we think of is pl- pleasure, right? Feeling a certain way, feeling good based on things being the way that we want them to. So it's a very subjective experience based on feeling good. So this isn't the happiness I'm talking about, you know, because that's that's based on conditions and conditions change. So even if I could get my external life and my body and my mind to be this idealistic way that I want it to be, and I might be able to do that, it's going to be a temporary thing because the nature of things is to fall apart. So you you get that perfect life and then all of a sudden it changes and your happiness changes with it because it's dependent upon something. So the happiness I'm talking about is like equanimity or like a deeper peace and joy, something that's not dependent on things having to be my way you know, but just being with things as they are. And 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 it, it's, it takes practice, right? That's what meditation literally is. Meditation is literally the, the, the practice and the end point at the same time because you're sitting there and things come up and you allow them to be there. You know, a thought comes up and you can just let it go. A feeling of discomfort comes up and you can sit with it and breathe with it. You're not giving those things anything to hold on to that, that doesn't create this ego, this sense of self, you know, one person called it selfing. I love that. You know, um, you know, we just constantly creating this solid sense of self, but in meditation, you're not, you're just in that space, you know, there just becomes space and things come and go. And right there is, is equanimity. You know, it's not about if I feel good or if I feel bad, like you could feel horrible throughout a whole meditation, but have complete equanimity. You know, and it's it's not a feeling. Well, you know, yes, you feel tranquil and nice when you meditate, but obviously that goes away. But there's something it's hard to put into words, but there's something else, you know, mm-hmm. just like a gratitude or something. I don't know. What's so funny is something that I'm just thinking about randomly is like leaving a meditation with a group of people and getting into my car and feeling amazing and then immediately going into gridlock traffic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I- yeah, so that's funny. I just can't I just can't get away from that thought. It just makes me laugh every time I think about it. So you have this amazing concept in the book about added and inevitable suffering. And I think these are super important to understand and I really enjoyed reading about them. So they're mostly what they sound like. Inevitable suffering is like a close person to you dies or there's sickness and things like that. But added suffering is something that you've also been talking about as well as sort of a theme in this conversation. Um can you talk a little bit about added suffering, just just to kind of clarify what that term means, and then uh, describe how maybe you sort of bring it on yourself that maybe you're still working with? Sure, yeah. So uh, let me think of a, a good example. So let's say um, you're in a committed relationship and you find out your significant other has you know cheated on you. Um, so right there, there's going to be pain. Right. There's going to be an inevitable suffering because it's a loss and any, any kind of loss um, will bring grief. And, you know, grief's a natural part of being human. Um, from there, you know, it usually just doesn't end with, OK, let me just grieve. It's like, well, what did I do? What's wrong with me? Am I unlovable? I'm not good enough. Well, you know, all this extra stuff, you know, there's a Buddhist story of the two arrows, you know, of a man getting shot with an arrow. And instead of just tending to that, he takes another bow and arrow and shoots himself again in the same spot. And for us, it's like again and again and again and again and again, you know, and it's just like we in trying to alleviate our suffering, we exacerbate it. You know, we make it a hundred times worse because we're just adding all of this extra stuff, storylines, judgments, aversions. Uh, shoulds, shouldn't, you know, and I give the example of my grandfather in hospice, like, uh, obviously, that was a painful event to see someone that you know, who's strong, could fix anything, could do anything, lying there slowly dying, you know. Um, But there was no added stuff. There wasn't anything else, at least from my perspective, it wasn't like, well, he's a good man, how could God do this? And, and why, why is this happening? And no, this is happening. This is the this is my life situation. This is what's presenting itself, and it's painful. But this is part of the human condition, and and I can relate to this and open to this. I can soften with this, and in fact, softening with the pain made me connect with a loving kindness and a compassion that was just very spacious and 
you know, our suffering can open us up to different dimensions of, of compassion and loving kindness. So we don't want to just throw it away. Um, I'm going a little off, uh, uh, <laughs> a little off, but basically, you know, it's like the added storylines and the, the, the obsessive thinking about it and not just dealing with things directly. And we do that to ourselves so often, um, where I, I'm imagining that like you're sitting at the gate to wait for a flight and the flight is canceled, right? And then how everybody will immediately charge the gate attendant. And there is this mass hysteria where people are freaking out and um, making the situation so much worse. Or there will be like a delay in a restaurant and somebody's been waiting for their food for an hour and a half and how they handle themselves in that situation can make everything either so much better or so much worse. Like it's, it's tiny little things too. And it, we ruin our own day so often based on how we respond to these external stimuli that we have no control over. Yeah. And, and we have no control over really um, the responses that come up within ourselves. But what we do have control over is if we indulge in them or not, you know, and if you, the more you indulge in the reactions, the easier they become the habit, right? It's like a, a whirlpool, you know, it just builds up momentum. But if we don't engage with them, we realize it's just up, I'm hooked, I'm triggered. I can feel that tightness, you can breathe with it, and then it just, it ends there, you know, and uh, something that I've been really pushing uh, in my classes lately is how can I meet this moment to be of benefit to all beings, or how can I meet this moment to, uh, with a sense of warmth, or, you know, how can I meet this reaction without escalating it, or how can I de-escalate it, right? Mm -hmm. Um so, you know, it's just the wisdom of knowing what escalates our suffering and what de-escalates it. And you have to be paying attention first and you have to be willing to look and be honest because we could easily blame the flight attendant or somebody else for our suffering. But meditation practice really says the only person that you can blame for your suffering and not in a, a shameful, like Judeo-Christian, you know, guilt-ridden sense, but the, the only person is it's our own self-grasping. It's our own reactions that we don't like. When the flight's canceled, the flight being canceled isn't a problem. The flight's just canceled. That's the truth. What we don't like is how that makes us feel. And that's our responsibility. That's our reaction. And these reactions, like you have a way of describing them in the book, it's like your your brain burps out these thoughts. Yeah. Right? And I, I just love that. I laughed. And my, my wife asked me to read the passage to her. What are you, what are you laughing about? So can you spell out the listener spell out for the listener how our brain burps and then elaborate on why we don't have to believe these thoughts about ourselves. Sure. So the, the, the analogy was kind of to show <laughs> how, you know, you burp or you pass gas or whatever, and it's something that you didn't choose to do. It's just like, you know, causes and conditions of your body and that, that it released this gas. And, um, we don't, grasp onto the gas and we don't say that's me or you know I make a problem out of it we just let it go and that's it but with our mind it's the same thing the problem is we think we're the thinker but when you start meditating you realize that thinking thinks itself all the time you know and you're not the thinker and you don't have to feel bad about your thoughts because you're not the one choosing to think them. there's just all these conditions and causes of your life and who knows, maybe previous lives or, or just inherited from our parents and how they lived and their parents and, and it just keeps going back. But um, basically, you know, it's just like, a, like I said, it's an organ, you know, you're, it's just spit stuff out, you know, all yeah. day. And, uh, it, you know, it's just, we don't have to take it personally. We don't have to take it seriously. Um, we can use it when it's necessary because it's necessary to think and to be a person and to be a separate self and all this stuff. But we can also let it go when, and this is important, when it's the cause of unwholesomeness, unskillfulness, uh, suffering. You know, so it's not like we have to throw ego out or throw. That's not the point. It's just what is what causes harm to myself and others, and am I willing to refrain from doing that? And, and you know, can I continue to cultivate? the things that bring non-harm. Yeah. So I think this type of behavior of doing a meditation practice, doing a yoga practice, I think these are things that a lot of people can can picture themselves doing. 
But one of the things that I run into is that we see we live in a largely non-Buddhist, non-Hindu country. But I see meditation as like a very secular activity that a person can undertake. Like, I would not say that I'm a Buddhist, but I do have a meditation practice. You have a meditation practice. And I'd imagine that not everyone at your yoga studio is Buddhist or Hindu either. So how do you encourage folks who wouldn't normally meditate because they aren't Buddhist or Hindu to take up these practices without them feeling like they're challenging their core beliefs and like identity? Because that's one of the big barriers that I think that meditation practice has in the United States. Yeah. So, you know, to be honest, I basically am teaching Buddhism, Um, (laughs) But and I, I don't have to mention like Buddha and you know uh, and there's some people that really disagree with this secular mindfulness and I understand the reasons why again it becomes a gimmicky self-help feel good another way, and just another way to to you know that's you know if you teach it right I think if you teach it right people resonate with it and what I mean by you know right not that I'm like this the right person or anything but. Um, you teach it in a way that really resonates by talking about the suffering. And I have so many people that come to my classes and you know, the only reason they're there is because they've tried everything else and nothing's working. Right. And this idea of working what what they're trying to say is like, I can't get rid of this thing I don't like, you know? So if I can speak to that and speak to that thing and how to relate to that thing, I mean, think about what, what, what do we suffer with? We suffer with, anything that makes us feel not good. So it comes down to this feeling tone, right? So if we can start opening up to and relaxing with uncomfortable feelings and feeling tones and discomfort and train ourselves to open to that, then what can bother us? Because that, that's the only thing that bothers us. The person at work that's a pain in the ass, they, they aren't a problem. It's just how you feel when you're around them. And you don't like that feeling, so you associate that feeling with them. So if I just avoid them, I don't have to deal with this feeling that comes up. So I don't know if I'm uh, on your question. (laughs) No, you are. It's fine. uh, You know, like, so I speak to people's suffering. And, And that's what the Buddha did. And, you know, I always wondered, why did the Buddha come out and talk about suffering? He didn't say, oh, enlightenment's awesome, man. Like, you gotta do this and this, and you're gonna be enlightened. He, he, you know, he said, life is dukkha, right? Life is dissatisfactory. There's some level of, of, of suffering and sorrows, and you know, it's just the nature of things. And I find that to be such a, a breath of fresh air when I speak in front of college kids and younger kids and even adults. You know, it's like when I say you're not screwed up, like if you're suffering, you're not, you know, you're not not successful if you have anxiety disorder or if you're um, depressed. It's it's uh, just the nature of, our, of being human. And, you know, some people cry from that. You know, it's like it's just like a relief. Like, wow, like nothing's wrong with me. Like you're not being punished. Like there's not it's just this is how things are, you know, in this realm of existence. And so I, I, I guess I speak like that in that in that kind of. What's a uh, what's a totally ordinary day look like for you from the time you wake up until the time you go to bed? Oh God, uh, I have really screwed up. Like I wake up at two or three in the morning for work because I work for a chip company. Uh, so I would drive the trucks and I deliver and I pack out. Um, and then, you know, I come home and I have my two kids. They're one and three uh, and my wife, of course. Um, and then I'm going back out to <laughs> meet a private client. Then I come back and then I'm going out to teach a yoga class or a intro to Buddhism course at the adult school or, um, you know, and I try to squeeze in my meditation in there when, whenever I can. And, um, yeah, it's, a, it's very uh, busy and overwhelming for most days. Uh, but if I didn't have this practice, I would, I would, I don't know what I would do. <laughs> so would you say that you are mostly happy? Yeah, I wouldn't say that I'm, uh, again, uh, defining happy. I'm sure, not sure. happy in the normal sense all the time. I'm definitely, there's tons of frustrations at work. There's difficulties raising kids. There's, you know, the, the waking up early and staying out late and having no free time. And, you know, so there's all this stuff that I could sit around and be miserable about because it's difficult and it's uncomfortable. 
Um, but I have this just sense of, the, you know, doing one thing at a time, one moment at a time. And there is this sense of ease. And I feel like I can face whatever life presents me. And maybe I can't, but I, you know, based on my life so far, I, I've, I've been able to open up to the difficulties and work with them. And even if I screw up, which I often do, I'm able to return back and start again and learn from, you know, that that way of behaving or that, you know, whatever it is. And then um, trying again, you know, it's just one of my uh, teachers used to say, you know, show up covered in mud. You know, we, we sometimes we feel like show up to your cushion, show up to the Zendo, cover it completely covered in mud. And uh, in talking about like, you know, it's like you could have a whole week where you got lost in your habits and you, you yelled at your partner and you did this and you feel ashamed. You don't even want to go. You don't even want like, what's the point? I, you know, and it just keep showing up. And, you know, so many of my meditation teachers and it was the worst answer. Like you'd go go to them and you tell them all this bad stuff in your life and they would just say, OK, keep sitting. And it's like, <laughs> keep sitting. I just told you all these problems. But you know, come back, come back to now, start fresh. What's going on now? You know, what's really happening? Tell me about your, uh, your band really quick and how, um, your practice inspires your music. Sure. So I, mean, I was in and out of bands growing up a lot and, uh, I ended up leaving a band and I just started writing music about my journey. I mean, this, uh, let, going inwards into yourself, letting go of things. It's like a, it's very messy and I'm a bit generally, happy in the other sense most of the time smiling very friendly you know uh, so when people hear my music like i know you heard the second album but the first album is even more dark and depressing than than the second one um but it, it it's i feel like i'm the only buddhist rock band that i know and it's basically all about that i call i mean i called it seeking the seeker you know is on my journey and you can kind of hear the you know as you go through the songs some of the the different levels i was at you know there was a, a time when i was trying to go back to christianity and i was wrestling with this idea of god and like what do you want me to do god like what where are you and why why can't i you know and there was a song god's misery you know and it, it, you know some of these songs you could think it's like about a girl or something like i'm so i think the lyrics were i'm so tired of loving you i'm so lost when i follow you but that that lyric is is kind of twofold like because i was trying to find god's wisdom or the universe wisdom and i was getting sick of that because there was nothing coming to me and i was sick of following my ego because that wasn't leading me anywhere either i was in this like desert phase of you know i was in a desert phase for such a long time where i just felt like uh, you know following me my own habitual tendencies isn't working but i don't have this other you know i have nothing else you know so it's like just that wrestling and that angst and i feel like when i was <laughs> trying to find god it's kind of a joke but i was like miserable and then when i just gave it up i found peace <laughs> <laughs> well mark van buren uh this has been a really really good time i'm so grateful to you for spending this hour with me today where can uh people find more if they want to get in touch with you or find your writing or your music or anything where can people find you Sure. So uh, authormarkvanburen.com is a, a nice place that you can find out about my books, upcoming events. Um, I do private training and I do it through Skype as well. I've had people in Canada and you know different places that are, aren't in New Jersey. If you're in New Jersey, you can come to my yoga studio, uh, Live Free Yoga, and you can meet privately with me or come to my classes. Uh, I'm big on Instagram, so it's authormarkvanburen.com is my whatever my name on there and i try to post just inspiring things you know you need to be reminded of this stuff every day because our habit energy is so strong to do the other the other way um so i try to post like things i'm reading or quotes or if i think of something cool i want to tell people or a video uh, and i do that so those are basically all the places that that you can find me thank you so much sir it's been a blast yes thank you I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Mark Van Buren. As an added bonus, here is Mark's band, Seeking the Seeker. The track is called She's Gone Away from the record Beyond Heaven and Hell. The record is available digitally, and you can find the band on Facebook. Enjoy.
Crushed all my dreams. Now there is. 